All right, welcome everybody. Welcome back to the room. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And so while you turn there, I'm going to invite Pam Bruner to come and read for us. Good morning. My name is Pam Bruner, as Gibson said, and I will be reading, if you would turn with me, to Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17, if you would open your Bibles. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Well, I've enjoyed having readers, and so if you would like to be a reader, if you would like to come up, even if you wouldn't like to be a reader, uh, chances are good that, uh, that I'm going to pick on you at some point and ask you to come read. Uh, it's so helpful to hear other voices, so I uh, encourage you uh, that if that's out of your comfort zone, uh, that may be something that, uh, that you might want to, to bulk up on, just reading and getting to know the names and the pronunciations, and I would love to be able to call on you to do that. In addition, uh, usually right before the sermon, before the intermission, we have for, for the last seven months or so... We've had different families come up and introduce themselves, and that's been a nice way for us to get to know different families uh, within our newly merged body of believers. And so if you uh, missed that opportunity, or maybe you dodged that opportunity uh, on purpose, we want you to stand up and we want you to, not today, not now, um, but we want you to be able to introduce yourself even if you're new. But if you feel like that this is a church where God might be leading you to become a part of and to plant yourself here, uh, we would love to get to know you and, and love for you to introduce yourself. It's just a small church and we're a family. It's a body of believers. And so if public speaking is not your thing, if this makes you nervous just thinking about that, uh, just let me put your uh, fears, uh, calm your fears a little bit that, um, that we're, no one's going to stone you, at least too hard. Uh, so you'll be okay. I uh, would love for you to be able to do that. Uh, Pam, thanks for reading this morning. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Uh, you probably noticed as she read through there that there are nine commands set against the backdrop of a negative story of Esau. Right? Nine commands, nine specific <laughs> commands that will help us. And so let me help put those nine commands in the backdrop of Esau, the negative example of Esau. Let me help put that in context as we begin this morning. If you think about the context, uh, way back three weeks ago, way back three weeks ago, we talked about Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. And the main point was, let us run this race with endurance, right? Let us run this race with endurance. Let us, based on all these people who have gone before you, this great cloud of witnesses who have walked by faith and they've all lived by faith and they've endured persecutions and trials and difficulties by maintaining their faith in Jesus Christ through those difficult times. Let us then, in light of them and in light of their example for us, let us run this race with endurance because many of you, as were many of them, are tempted to go backward, 
to walk away from Jesus altogether. At some point in your life, a trial might hit you and it might be difficult enough. It might be painful enough. Persecution might be hard enough that you'll be tempted to walk backward. For this crowd, they were tempted to go back into Judaism or to reject Jesus altogether. And so for us, that may not be Judaism. For you, it might be something else, a different way of life or a a former habit. Or you would turn to something else for comfort uh, or turn away from Jesus in the midst of trials and difficulties and persecutions. And so the general idea is to endure <clears throat> to press on and to continue. 12, 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, let us run this race by faith with endurance. Last week, we talked about discipline, right? The difficult trials that you're in, they uh, are related to the Lord's discipline and training in your life. He is teaching you something, shaping your character, molding you, and making you something by using those trials. You know, Romans 8 describes that, that uh, God can work good out of a terrible circumstance. Many of you, uh, when we first merged back in April, we took a poll and the question was, uh, at which point in your life did you grow closest to God and what was it that caused that extreme growth? Over 75% of you responded that it was a trial and a difficulty that caused you to press further into Christ. And so those trials do something. God uses them. That was last week's message. So now today, we're going to find reasons to endure, and we're going to find some commands that will help us all as a community of believers endure together. Right? So we're going to find some reasons in here that we should endure, the why, and we're going to find some how. How can we endure together in the form of commands? And, and you may know this already, but, but when you get to the end of a letter, uh, specifically a Pauline letter, this isn't a, a letter from Paul, but specifically in the letters of Paul, you find a format. There's an outline. There's a general outline that was very common in letters in the Greek world, in the Roman world at that time. Uh, They uncovered huge landfills. Not really landfills, because they would just dump Roman trash off barges on the desert shores of North Africa in some places. And then the the sand would cover them, but these would just be enormous Landfill, what we would think of as a landfill. And in these landfills, preserved in the dry sand, would be thousands and thousands and thousands of letters and scraps of paper and metal and bits of just trash. And as archaeologists have sifted through these things, they found hundreds of thousands of examples of letters that would follow the same format that Paul would write. I got a point for all this, and the point is that Paul's letters... And letters from this time period follow a certain format. In the beginning, there's an introduction, there's a greeting, there's some instruction, there's um, some uh, teaching, and then at the end, there's what's called paranesis. Paranesis is a rhetorical device. How many of you study rhetoric? I know some of you do. It's a rhetorical device that gives you a rapid-fire exhortation. That's why when you read the end of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, all these New Testament books at the end, Romans is especially true, you're just going to find a rapid fire list of things to do. And this idea, this paranesis uh, is based on this idea that the author of the letter wants you to do something to continue in the path that you've already started down. To continue the path. And you should think of these lists, maybe a good way to describe it for our purposes, is maybe a list of best practices. 
Have you seen business blogs that tell you the best way for you to do this is these lists of best practices or a top 10 list of what you should do to put whatever teaching came before into action? You're going to find that here. You're going to find that sort of paranesis here uh, in this list. And I think we kind of get this intuitively. Uh, How many of you have been out and uh, maybe it's toward the end of the day and your spouse texts you on your way home, stop and get blank. And then you're in the store and you're in the line and you're checking out and then you get the other text and get this. And then you put your stuff away and you go out and you get it. And then you get to the car. And if you haven't left yet, get this. Right. And if you haven't left, this is sort of that rapid fire to do list that comes toward the end of the message. I know that never happens to anybody. Uh, It's just an example of what happens to some people somewhere. Um, But this is the kind of ideas that a calm, a list of commands, advice, practical tips and best practices comes toward the end to help you put into practice all that took place. Think about the book of Hebrews, for example. Uh, I've compiled all of the commands in the book of Hebrews. All of the direct action verbs. All of the things that you're supposed to do in light of the teaching. And just listen to the flow of it. Chapter 1, 0. Chapter 2, 1. We must pay much closer attention. Chapter 3, there are three commands. Consider Jesus, encourage each other, and take care. Chapter 4, there are five Uh, Chapter 5, there are zero direct commands or action verbs. Chapter 6, you get a stretch, nine of them. And so you can see this rhythm of teaching, introduction, uh, an idea is developed, and then there's a rapid-fire succession of things to do in order to help you grasp that teaching. Chapter 7, there are zero. Chapter 8, there are zero. Chapter 9, there are zero. And so what do you expect after four chapters of teaching. You expect a list, right? And you would be correct. Good job. Chapter 10, there are seven direct commands. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Let us not forsake. Let us encourage each other. Remember the former days and don't throw away your confidence. Then we get into chapter 11. It's all about faith. There are no commands at all. There's just the examples. But then we hit chapter 12 and there are 14 commands here. And there's 23 in chapter 13. So there's a rapid fire list. It's almost like he's just throwing everything he can at the very end of the grocery list. And don't forget this and don't forget that and go do this and don't forget to do that. All of these things are the best practices in order for you to be able to walk by faith in order for you to be able to endure. So he's going to give us this list. And that that's why in this particular section, there are nine commands Nine commands. So let's, let's jump right into them and let's just bundle them in a certain way that we can understand them better. Uh, if you look at the first three from verses one through three, they are three uh, strengthens or straights. The, the Greek word is orthos, like the orthodontist will set straight your teeth. This is the same word used for all three of these things. Set straight your drooping hands. Set straight your fragile knees, your weak knees, and set straight your path. All three use the same word orthos. They all three describe roughly the same idea. That's the first set of commands. We'll get into those in a second. The second set of commands are two strives. Strive for peace and strive for holiness. So we'll get into those in a minute. And then the third set start with the word see to it. See to it that no one fails to get grace. See to it that no one gets bitter. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. And see to it that no one is unholy. And that's where we get the negative example of Esau. 
Now, let's go back. You think, well, can't you just end the sermon? You just went through all your points? But it's not that simple. Right? You don't get off that easy. Uh, I've got a lot of good things to say. Uh, hopefully the Lord will speak to you through this. So let's go back to the three straights. The three straights. He says, lift your drooping hands or set them straight. Uh, strengthen your weak knees or set them upright. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Uh, all three of these carry the same basic idea, and they remind you of 12, 1 through 3, which he introduced this race language, right? He said, therefore, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance. And he says that we should put away the obstacles, the sin that cling so closely and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Do you remember that? He introduced this race language. And so he's going back to that after he talked about discipline to this idea of how you can run well with these three commands to lift your drooping hands, to strengthen your weak knees and to make straight paths. So let's get an understanding of this. What does this mean? Well, he's bringing to them these Hebrew converts He's bringing to them a quote from Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to have a lot to say about Isaiah 35. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to refer to Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 a few times. Because it's an important passage. But Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 4. It says, strengthen your weak hands and make firm your feeble knees. And say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. Now, this is written to exiles. This is written to uh, the Israelites who 700 years earlier were in exile and were struggling and were having a difficult time. And, And the prophet Isaiah is saying there will come a time when God will revisit you and he will bring you back. So despite the fact that you're mentally down, despite the fact that you're struggling, that your, your spirits are down, he's describing that in terms of drooping hands and weak knees. So despite the fact that that's happening, he's saying, be strong, fear not, behold, your God comes with vengeance. He's trying to encourage them in their mental state. Right? He's not literally saying to lift your drooping hands up physically or to, to do some sort of leg presses to get your, your legs stronger. It, this is just a metaphor. He's saying your mentality is low because you've been beaten down. But I want you to know that God is coming. God is coming and he's going to rescue you and he's going to help you and he's going to strengthen you. Your mentality, you were down, you were afraid, you're anxious, you're nervous, you're fearful, you're tentative. And all those things take courage. Be strong. Strengthen your arms. Strengthen your, your knees. And, uh, and, and, and take strength. I had this as a tentative note. And I can't believe I'm going to share it because it's, uh, it's kind of ridiculous. But the image that came to mind as I was studying this was from like fourth grade, Saturday morning, Mid-South Wrestling. Right, does anybody remember like WWF Mid-South Wrestling of Ted DiBiase and Dr. Death Steve Williams and Skandar Akbar, the, the Von Erichs? Is this ringing any bells to anybody? George the Animal Steel, Andre the Giant, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. 
uh, Midnight Express, Sting, Junkyard Dog, Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Anybody, any bells ringing? Does this remind you of anything? I was fascinated with this sort of terrible wrestling. Maybe I'm regretting that I'm bringing this up, but, but I, I was remembering this because it seemed like they always pitted the, the kind of evil wrestlers with the good guy wrestlers. And every week as a little third, fourth, fifth grade kid, I was just amazed that the good guys are going to lose, right? And the good guys are getting beat up. And then um, something happens where they're about to get pinned and the count is one, two, and they just happen to find enough strength to kick out of the pin, right? Or uh, something happens and they just find a little bit of strength. And the master of this was, was Hulk Hogan, Right, his eyes would get real big as you could see, like the strength recharging, and uh, and in would come. Um, you know, one hand would go up, and he would kind of flex, and you could just see the strength rising in him. Uh, and again, you know, good would win over evil, and and they would come back and win. I know that's not what the author of Hebrews had in mind here, <laughs> but it's just what I thought about because uh, they were beat down. And they were downtrodden and their spirits were low. And then something happened that would renew their strength. Talking about these wrestlers. It was all fake. Newsflash, I know. But, but for these community of believers, specifically for that group in Isaiah, but also for this group in Hebrews, they were under persecution and struggle and difficulty and pain and trials. And their spirits were getting low. If you go through enough battering and beating and struggle and abuse, whether it's mental or or spiritual or in some sort of struggle and you feel like the end just can't come soon enough. He's saying, take heart, be strong because God is your deliverer and he will come to rescue you. That's your hope. Lift your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured what? The cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That's 12, 1 through 3. That's the idea, is to take strength. The next command he gives in that section is to make straight paths. To make straight paths. And this again goes back to Isaiah 35, 8. He describes when God comes back that he will redeem them, And he says, there shall be a highway. It shall be called the way of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray because of this clear wide highway that the redeemed will march along, that the redeemed will walk along. Back into 12, 1, 2, and 3, he said to clear the path. And so if if the first couple of commands in this section had to do with your mentality, not being afraid. God didn't give us a spirit of fear or timidity. Paul wrote to Timothy, but, uh, but a spirit of love and self-discipline. If God is wanting you to bolster your spirit and strengthen and, and put your hope in Him, and that has to do with you personally inten- in, internally, this has to do with externally. How do you make straight paths for yourself? Proverbs 3, 5-6 says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And so there's a way in which you lift your gaze to him. And by faith, he begins to clear obstacles for you. Similar idea in that when Peter stepped out of the boat, he fixed his eyes on Jesus, right? And he's walking along on the water and 
everything's okay until what? He sees the wind and he sees the waves. In other words, he takes his eyes off Jesus and then all these obstacles start to come and he, he begins to sink. So in a similar way, when you want to have a clear path, as you walk with Christ by faith and you begin to clear obstacles, the first way is you must look to Jesus, fixing your eyes on him, keeping your eyes on the finish line, clearing away obstacles that trip you up. But this also has a real practical implication. Are there places you go where temptation is stronger than others? Well, it depends on what you struggle with. I've never been tempted to rob a bank, and so I can walk into a bank at any moment, and there's never a single moment that I'm going to pull out a gun or something and try to hold up the bank. But if you're a bank robber and you struggle with the temptation to rob banks, for you and your experience, walking into a bank might be difficult, and I should just suggest you do some online banking, uh, maybe. (laughs) That's a ridiculous example. But it applies that if you struggle with alcohol, don't buy a case of beer or a case of wine or don't go into liquor stores or don't go in. Don't go around environments where people who are drinking are going to be there. If you struggle with adultery, if you struggle with pornography, if you if you struggle with being visually pure, stay out of places. This is practical ways that you can clear the path of obstacles and sin that so easily entangles you and sin that clings so closely and the obstacles that are wanting to destroy you. We talked about last week, though, or two weeks ago, that it's not just sin that trips you up in your path. It's also good things like hobbies uh, and, and um, you know, entertainment and other things that aren't on the surface bad but can still trip you up and, and, uh, and take away your strength and... and trip you up in that way. So that's clearing your path. That's straight paths. That's drooping hands and strengthening your weak knees. But let's move on to the second set of commands, the two strives. If the first one was endurance in relation to yourself internally in your path, the second set of commands is endurance in relation to yourself and to your wider community. Endurance in relation to yourself and your wider community. And it says two things. Strive for peace and strive for holiness. The strive for peace has to do with having peace in all your relationships. Having peace in all your relationships. In other words, as much as it has to do with you, Paul wrote to the Romans, be at peace with everyone. Now notice he says strive for peace. And he doesn't say achieve peace, right? Because there are some people that you just can't achieve peace with, right? And in those situations, you have to set up a healthy boundary. If somebody repeatedly, continually wounds you and injures you, and to to the best of your ability, you go to the edge of that boundary and offer forgiveness and offer grace and offer help and offer hope, but at some point you clear that boundary and say, you can't come in here If you're going to continuously wound and hurt and take advantage. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have been physically abused or sexually abused. Some of you have been mentally abused or verbally abused. And there has to be a point. This is not saying that you um, endure that abuse without boundaries. But it does say that you go to a, a line to the end of that boundary. And as much as it's up to you, you seek and pursue peace in that relationship. 
Now, for a lot of you, uh, you're going to have to do some work in this area. Over the past two decades, anytime the Lord uh, convicts me or brings up an offense that I've committed against someone, and it's been often, particularly in my, uh, my earlier days before I was a believer, but not just as an unbeliever, but also as a believer, if I've done something to someone and the Lord brings conviction about that, it's my obligation and it has been my habit to go to that person and to confess and to seek forgiveness and to apologize and to not make excuses, but to go to them and to, to reconcile. I can look back through emails and messages and phone calls and, and I can see people that have had something against me for good reason that I've done against them on purpose uh, or unintentionally, but either way I've wounded them. And I've had to go back and ask for forgiveness. And it's been painful, and it's been difficult, and it's been risky. But it's always been worth it as I can stand before you today and say that I have peace. As much as I'm able, with as much as God has revealed to me. And I'm sure there are a hundred ways that I've offended people, maybe even in this room. And you think I should know it, but I just don't know it. Uh, maybe as the Lord brings it to my attention uh, to the best of my ability, I will fulfill this scripture to strive for peace. Some of you need to make a list of people that you've offended, things that you've taken, words that you've spoken in anger, uh, things that you've done in haste or in greed or in other ways, and seek peace because there's nothing better than a clean conscience. I had a random guy that I used to play golf with. And every time we would drive somewhere, he would pull over if he saw a police car. And I said, Brad, what are you doing, man? He's a pastor. <laughs> Why are you pulling over every time you see a police car? And he just had this fear that he was going to be arrested or pulled over. And so I encourage you to strive for peace in that way. Strive for holiness and sanctification is the second thing. This is a difficult thing for us to grasp at times because positionally we're holy, right? When you were saved... When God redeemed you and regenerated you, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you became hagios, right? You became a holy person. Positionally, when God sees you, He sees you wearing the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus was exchanged for your sin and guilt. And so now anytime God the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers you. Positionally, we are made holy and righteous. But practically, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still give in to temptation. Maybe it's just me. Maybe, I don't know if it's you or not, but, but practically I still struggle and I still give in and I still deal with this issue. And so while we're positionally holy, practically we're becoming holy. And this process is called sanctification, right? And it begins at the moment of uh, redemption and it will end at your last breath. God will continually be working Christ-likeness into you. And I doubt there's a one of you who will stand up today and say, I am completely holy without blemish. Anybody? Any takers? Eh, probably not. Um, not anybody who's walked with the Lord for any length of time anyway. So we strive for holiness. And Dr. Moeller says, this does not mean that those who run this race of faith are perfect or sinless. But listen clearly, it does mean they are fighting sin and living faithfully. And without that holiness, no one sees the Lord. Let's move on to the third set, the four C to it's. He gives four C to it's 
And he tells them first, see to it that no one fails to obtain grace. That's verse 15. Did you know that you are eligible as a member of the body of Christ and as a member of a local congregation, you are eligible to receive grace. You're eligible to receive grace under conditions that if God was able to overlook the worst sins and to save and to give grace to me and to others, that means that that same grace at which you were first met at salvation is available to you throughout your sanctification process. That you can't out the grace of God. I have people who come to me in confession looking for punishment as they are broken and as they are wounded and as the Lord is convicted, they will come to me and they will say, Gibson, this is what I did. Can you forgive me? And can the church forgive me? And, and how do I seek reconciliation? And, and, and I always start with this. Listen, you may be under the discipline of God and you may be experiencing the negative consequences of your sinful behavior or of your bad decisions, but the punishment was taken by Jesus. You don't have to beat yourself or hurt yourself or flog yourself or uh, make yourself feel bad. The punishment was already taken for you. You will experience the consequences. The Lord will discipline those He loves. And there is church discipline within this body of believers. We've gone through the steps of Matthew 18 where we've confronted people who are in sin one-to-one. The best church discipline is the kind that you never see, right? Because Matthew says uh, you go to somebody and you confront them with their sin and if they've sinned and they repent, then you've won them over and you're, you're allowing the grace of God to be demonstrated through you through their act of repentance when confronted. But if they refuse to respond, then two or more go and they confront them. And their goal of church discipline is always restoration. That that they would repent of the sin that's going to kill them and it's going to ruin their life. Your goal is to win them over, to win that person back, to help them repent of their sin and, and be renewed in their faith. And to the degree that you confront them in truth and in love and they respond Uh, You don't see church discipline. On very rare occasions in the six-year history of Ridgeline, I I can't speak for Rock Hill or other churches that you've been a part of, but on only one or two occasions have we had to go to that third level where we bring a sin issue before the whole church and we vote to put somebody out of the fellowship because of an unrepentant unwillingness to confess. It's just a willingness to not tolerate cancer in your body. And if you have cancer in your body, the surgeon will say, let's get it out immediately. In the same way, if a church body has an unrepentant, willful sinner who despite confrontation continues to persist, that person must come under the healthy, restorative, loving, redemptive discipline of the body of believers. And you never really see it because in most often cases, it's one of you going to another one of you saying, Hey, brother, I saw what happened. I heard what you said. Or I saw what you did. And out of a heart of love, it's my hope that you'll confess and repent of that. And more often than not, that process happens week in and week out. And you are responsive to that. And that's the grace of God. And so it's in our passage here that we are to walk as a community enduring by seeing to it that we behave this way toward each other, that we 
see to it that we each receive grace. The second thing we're supposed to see too is that not one of you allows bitterness to spring up. See, bitterness is like poison. And if you're holding unforgiveness against somebody else in your heart and bitterness begins to creep in, maybe they said something to you, maybe they wounded you, maybe somebody in this fellowship or somebody in your family or somebody outside of this body of believers offended you and you become bitter and angry. And the longer you hold that bitterness and anger, it's like drinking poison and expecting that other person to die, right? And what it does is it stains and pollutes the entire body of believers. And so it's our responsibility among each other that if you hear somebody bring up somebody else's name and there's a little extra kind of heat and anger on that comment, you say, hey, brother, sounds like you might have some, some bitterness. Is everything okay? Are you, are you walking in forgiveness? Have you confessed? Is that, uh, is that bitterness creeping into your life? The third and fourth way is that we're to make sure that no one among us is sexually immoral and that no one is unholy. These are difficult things, right? You've maybe heard of fundamentalist type colleges that uh, go to local bars and take note of whose cars are there and sift through trash. And, you know, this isn't kind of a, you can't skip the first part to make sure that everybody obtains grace. And then at the same time, legalistically, you'll never see me in your trash can, like looking for junk on you. I promise you that. (laughs) I'm not looking for dirt on anybody. But as the Lord makes things known and as the Lord convicts and as, as issues become apparent within the body of Christ, as there's confession... It's our role to make sure that none of these things affect the the larger body. All of those things can affect us. So how's, how's the balance? How do we see to it amongst the fellowship? Let me give you a couple of stays. Stay connected with one another. Stay accountable with one another. Stay in confession and repentance. Stay connected. Stay accountable. Stay in confession and repentance. Find a group of people that you trust and that you love. Be willing to confess your sin and be willing to allow them to confront you. I have a handful of guys that have full permission to take my phone at any time, to check my browser history, and to look into my life, to ask hard questions. And by this way, the Lord will preserve my salvation by allowing me not to go down any path that will promote destruction. Do you give people permission to look into your life like that? Are you hiding something? If you find yourself constantly clearing your browsers or constantly shifting what you watch on TV and the music you listen to or the things that you do, find somebody who is willing to confront you for your own good. That's how you stay. He does all this against the negative uh, example of Esau. And you remember Esau, and, and this sermon is winding to an end here, I promise. But he does all of this with Esau in mind. Who was Esau? Esau was Jacob's brother. There was Abraham that God chose. There was Isaac, his son. And then Isaac had two twin boys, uh, Jacob and Esau. You remember the story? Esau came out first and he was red and hairy. They called his name Esau or Edom because uh, he was just a red, hairy dude. And And his brother came out, Jacob, and he was just grabbing his heel. And so they named him Jacob, which means he grasped the heel, which later came to be known as the deceiver. He was kind of a shifty guy. Esau, red hairy guy, was a hunter. 
He was always out in the field. Isaac loved him. He always uh, was bringing home stuff that he killed. Um, and, and Jacob said he was kind of a soft guy that hung around the tents. Uh, a little bit of a mama's boy. I'm not, I'm not making things up. I'm just saying what the text says. Summarizing 10 chapters here. Uh, the tragedy was that birthright was important, right? Technically, Esau was born first. And so because of that, he received all the inheritance and all the blessing, which we know from our understanding of redemptive history meant he was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. That all the blessings that would flow from the promises of Abraham all the way back to the Garden of Eden through the promise of a Redeemer would flow through that line. But Esau, we know, despised his birthright, correct? He came home from hunting and he was starving and little soft Jacob had some stew going. And, uh, and so Esau said, give me some of that stew. And he said, uh, "Just sell it. I'll sell it to you. Uh, just give me your birthright. Give me your birthright, meaning if, if something happens to our father Isaac, rather than you getting the inheritance and all the blessings and the lineage and all that stuff, I now get it for this, this stew that I'm going to give you. And, and Esau said, I don't, I don't care about that. I'm about to starve. What do I care about that right now? I'm going to die. Give it to me. And so Moses wrote in Genesis that he despised his birthright. Um, Esau made other questionable decisions. He was cor- corrupted and carried away by his appetite. He married two Hittite women. Uh, he married a third wife from another tribe. Uh, he hated Jacob to the point of premeditated murder. After 20 years of festering in anger and bitterness, he sought to take Jacob and his blessing with force. He came to meet him 20 years later with 400 fighting men and an army. Esau's life was a mess. But here we see in this passage, and we see in other places in Genesis, that Esau wept. That Esau cried. And he cried because he lost his birthright. When, remember when Isaac tricked him? He put sheep's hair on his hands and his neck, put on his brother's clothes. And when Isaac was blind and he went to bless his son Esau, Jacob snuck in with these, this costume on, And stole his blessing. And when Isaac came in a little while later, not Isaac, when Esau came in a little while later, he said, give me my blessing, father. Uh, Eat this stew and give me what's coming to me. And he said, I already already blessed somebody. Wasn't you. And it says that Esau wept and he sought the blessing. He wanted the blessing of God and he sought it. He sought it throughout his life. Esau lived a life of regret, and it made me think of this. Have you ever wondered how two people from the same household can turn out so differently? Maybe that hits home a little bit. Maybe you have brothers or sisters or kids, grandkids, and both raised under discipline in church and the Bible. One of them might turn out to walk with the Lord and love Jesus, and another might turn out to, to live very differently. And this is similar to this. Against this whole backdrop, Esau had a life of regret, of misplaced passion, and his desire was primarily for temporal and immediate pleasure over that which is eternal. His desire for that which was temporal and immediately pleasurable over that which was eternal. Started reading a book called Your Future Self Will Thank You. 
that described the Stanford marshmallow experiment where uh, a guy took a bunch of kids and gave them a marshmallow and said, you can have this marshmallow now. Or if you wait 15 minutes, we'll give you 20 marshmallows. And then they left the room. I'm just watching these kids like sweat over a marshmallow. And the whole study was all about delayed gratification. And would they wait or would they just act on their immediate desire and pleasure or would they wait for something? And that happened in the 60s and 70s led by uh, psychologist Walter Mischel at Stanford University. And through a long series of events, they were able to follow up through decades with those kids who took this test. And what they found were that those who waited in follow-up studies, the children who waited longer for the bigger, preferred, later rewards, tended to have better life outcomes measured by test scores, educational attainment, body mass index, and other life measurables. Isn't that interesting? To the degree that you're able to stifle your appetite for sin now, persist by faith in Jesus, looking to Him and fixing your hope on what's to come rather than escaping the pain you're in right now, you will be able to endure in Christ. I'll close with Isaiah 35, 1-10. This is God's word to all of those who were trusting in Him that everlasting joy was coming despite the pain they were in. Isaiah 35, 1-10 says, The wilderness that you're in, the dry land, shall soon become glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So strengthen your weak hands and make firm your feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and with everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and all sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isn't that powerful? What a reward. What a reward that is coming to those who endure and persist by faith. This is pointing to Jesus. And the same Jesus who came to die for you then is coming back to redeem you and reclaim you and bring you to that place where there will be no more tears and no more crying. And the discipline and the pain and the trials will all go away and your reward shall be Christ. Don't be like Esau who rejects that for temporal pleasure and comfort.
Lord Jesus, grant us endurance by faith in you. That we would endure by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you give us that supernatural striving that we may in every way persist until the end. That we may put off immorality and unholiness. And that in every way we would seek you by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.